Hello, and welcome to episode 100 of Killer Hangover. I am Beth. And I am Bettina. I was just thinking, I got a little sidetracked. Are we going to say like episode 127 of Killer Hangover in the future? I know. It's hard enough to remember 89. (laughs) What number are we on? What state are we covering? (laughs) No, no. We're going to have to. We're going to have to. Oh, wait. Just a minute. How about 220? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Mind blown. (laughs) I cannot believe that we just celebrated two years of this podcast a little bit ago, and now 100 episodes. And boy, has it been a fun ride. Oh, my gosh. Just we've met so many cool people. We've learned so many really fun things. And not so fun things, but... Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been such an interesting ride. We started this just kind of on a fluke because we shared the same interest. And And it was COVID and we were, what are we going to do with ourselves? like, you know, (laughs) it'd be a nice hobby to do, but it's definitely turned more into... I mean, I can't even tell you the faces of people that looked at me. Mm, Does that make sense? No. Uh... Of people that looked at me, like, you do a podcast with your mom? <laughs> Doesn't she, like, drive you crazy? Like, with your mom? Yeah, with my mom. Oh. And we're 100 episodes in. Well, people look at me and say, you do a podcast with your daughter? That is so cool. Oh. I know cooler people than you do, obviously. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Well, we've lasted 100. This might be the last one. I don't know. (laughs) And we're not recording virtually. I know. We made a point of that. Yes. Not for 100. Yes. Mom popped a bottle of sparkling. You know We're celebrating. What are we drinking, Mom? What kind of sparkling are we drinking? Well, I made for us a Cur Royale. Cur? Cur Royale. Okay. K-I-R. Cur pronunciation we're a hundred episodes in and still why change why changes <laughs> i've got a delicious rosé from chandon and then i added a splash of cream de cassis cream de cassis <laughs> into it and there you have the cure royale so what is a cure royale is that just when you add like a fruit flavoring into your no that's when you actually add the cream de cassis into sparkling into sparkling oh so we're like drinking a real cocktail yeah (laughs) i thought it was just another thing that you made up i don't know like why'd she pick that name Cur Royale. What does that mean? Where'd you pull that name out of? (laughs) Why don't you call it like the 100 drink? I don't know. (laughs) We'll name it after another dog. The Terrier Cocktail. (laughs) No. (laughs) If you never listened to us before, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Cheers to 100, Mom. Cheers. Oh, that is delicioso. I feel like with the name Cur Royal and Cream de Cassis, I need to speak in a different... And Chandon. Okay. (laughs) Well, Well, I'm really excited for this episode. Oh my gosh, I am too. We decided that we're going to just have some fun and cover some crazy stories for you guys. Some bizarre. Yeah, just... Here are some of our favorite bizarre stories. And I've got three of them. Mom has three of them because she couldn't she oh, couldn't decide. I was pretty proud of myself that I nailed three. <laughs> there is a lot of bizarre stuff out there. I know. We should do this more often because <laughs> I had so much fun with mine. Well, I think what we're going to do, since I have three and you have one, I will read my first one. You make me sound like a slacker. I have three and she has one. But yours is a big one. Yes. Yes, it is. So I'll read my first one. Okay. Then it's your turn. Okay. And then I'll finish it up with my two. Okay. All right. (laughs) Okay, here we go. 
number one. (laughs) Tennis shoes found on the beach. Doesn't sound strange at all, does it? Let me add this little factoid. The shoes all contained human feet. No bodies, just feet. That is terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I go out looking for seashells. Like, that would be terrifying. Terrifying. If Can I'm you like, imagine? Oh, there's some tennis shoes. Oh, cool. And like you kind of just look at them. Oh my God, there's a foot in there. Oh, just wait. The first shoe containing a right foot <laughs> was found on the shore of Jedediah Island in August 2007. Uh, that is in British Columbia. Through DNA analysis, the owner of the foot was actually identified as a man who had gone missing in 2004. Also, in August 2007, a right foot, another right foot, was found wearing a sneaker (laughs) on Gabriola Island, Canada. That owner was identified as a man who went missing in 2006. In 2008, four sneaker-wearing feet were washed ashore in different places in Canada. Foot three matched with foot number five, a male missing since 2006, and four matched with foot number six, a female missing since 2004. Okay, I have a really dumb question. It might not be dumb. How are they matching these feet with these people? Do toes have, like, toe prints? DNA. Oh. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I don't know why I didn't think of that. Oh no. 100 episodes in covering true crime 100 true crime cases and I am just DNA? What? Those prints. I told you it was going to be a stupid question. Oh my- Okay, I get it. That is a stupid question. You should cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh. In 2009, only one sneaker with a foot was found floating in the Fraser River. Oh, DNA no. matched the owner to a male missing since 2008. Foot number eight was found in False Creek, Vancouver. Its owner missing since 2010. In November 2011, a foot wearing a black high top sneaker was found in British Columbia. That foot belonged to a man who'd been missing since 1985. Oh my goodness. That's an old foot. In 2012, a right-footed sneaker was found in False Creek. It was established that this foot belonged to the same missing man whose shoe or foot was found in 2009. So now we've got another match. So is this all like in a general area or are you just telling us about feet found around the world? No, this is all Canada. Uh, oh, well, I didn't know where these rivers were. Don't look at me like that. Vancouver, British Columbia, it's all Canada. Okay. okay. Now we're going to skip a few years that went by with no grizzly discoveries until February 2016. Two identical tennis shoes with feet inside were found at different times, washed <laughs> up so weird. onto the botanical beach in Vancouver Island. BC, Canada. The shoes were black and blue New Balance running shoes. It was determined that although they were found at different times, these size 12 shoes belonged to the same person. Unfortunately, to date, that person has never been identified. Mm. Foot number 13, in case you've lost count, (laughs) (laughs) I had actually, was found in December 2017. This one was a little different. And that's what I was referring to in the beginning when you said, oh, my gosh, it's so gross. This one had the tibia and fibula still attached. (laughs) And they actually had a picture of it. Oh, it was so cool. (laughs) Oh, that's mom. That's not cool. No, it actually was. That foot and joined bones belonged to a 79 year old man who had been missing since September. So it was it's just a fresher one. It's just absolute bones. Nothing else. I mean, you know. Oh, so it's not like a foot. It's no, just... no. In the foot, in the shoe. <laughs> yes, there's bone. In, in the shoe, it had been encased. So yes, there's more than bone there. But the tibia and fibula were not covered with anything. So they fibia were. Fibula or fibula? <laughs> tibia and fibula. Fibula. Yeah, there you go. Tibia and fibia. That sounds like twin <laughs> sisters that live next door. Like, <laughs> Well, they do. They're bones that live next door to each other. But they were totally <laughs> stripped. Okay. Oh, 
Oh, God, you're weird. Okay. In May 2018, so we're getting closer to our time. <laughs> the Great. right foot was matched to a male that had gone missing earlier that year. September 2018, a left foot was found and matched to a male who had also gone missing that year. That brings us to the last foot found awashed ashore to this day. Okay, so New Year's Day. Think about this. You're celebrating New Year's Day and you're walking out the beach in 2019. A foot enveloped in a boot on Jetty Island in Everett, Washington. It was established that this foot belonged to a 22-year-old male that went missing in December 2016. That's a total of 16 sneakers with feet. So what gives? Well, the answer is quite elementary, dear Watson. So do you have any ideas? No, I'm sitting over here totally aghast. Please explain to me. Is it like some, I don't know. I don't want to say something stupid again. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. To begin with, human bodies naturally come apart at the joints when they're submerged in water for a while. So the people drown? Especially salt water. Sea critters help the process by going for parts of the bodies that are softest. For example, the tissues and ligaments at the wrists and ankles. So why aren't hands showing up on the shores, right? Because Mm -hmm. supposedly the critters are eating the wrists also. Well, because they're not enclosed in shoes, primarily buoyant tennis shoes. I was going to say, because they're all shoes. It's not like high heels washing Which up. describes the running shoes made recently. Feet wearing high heels or slippers or flip-flops aren't showing up on the shore either. It's all these buoyant tennis shoes. Oh my gosh. Yes. So why are the feet showing up on the shores of the Salish Sea? The body of water between Vancouver and Seattle that includes Puget Sound in the Strait of Georgia. According to Kathy Taylor, a forensic anthropologist at the King County Medical Examiner's Office, there are a lot of dead bodies in the Salish Sea as a result of having highly populated areas on the coast. Oh my gosh. Another important reason... So don't swim there. Yeah. Another important reason the feet are found on the shores of the Salish Sea, I hope I'm saying that right, is because for the most part, wind moves from west to east. So along with the winds and the currents, floating things, the buoyant shoes, will be blown or carried to the coast. These are not the only feet ever found. In 2017, a sneaker with foot was found in a boat ramp dumpster. On the Willamette River near Portland, Oregon. That same year, on the other side of the U.S., in Charleston, South Carolina, a foot in a tennis shoe was found on a dock. Mm. Moving closer to the middle of the U.S., a shoe with foot was found on the banks of the Mississippi River near St. Louis, Missouri. Now, this is not only a U.S. thing either. (laughs) In 2016, right... Oh, so were those victims of drowning too? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, but they were not a, identified. But how was it in a dumpster? Probably somebody was fishing or whatever. And and they didn't freak out that they had a human foot on the end of their line? Or they freaked out so much they threw it and it landed in the dumpster. I don't know. But Good aim. That's where they found it. Just like the one on the dock. You know, it didn't wash up there. Just... Somebody just left it there. So in 2016, right before the Summer Olympics began, a shoe with a foot washed up in Rio de Janeiro in the area of the volleyball courts. And this Uh, is right before the Olympics started. Oh, my gosh. Feet also washed up on a very popular beach in Fuji. But there were more sinister reasons for those. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I'll cover it sometime. But that was my bizarre first story. It's just... What a kick. (laughs) (laughs) Feet washing ashore. That's, I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't at the same time. It's just creepy. It's weird. And was somebody in one of the articles was quoted as saying, yeah, since that happened, there's really no shoe unturned on the beaches anymore because people I'm are sure. looking. I mean, it's just like, oh, is this another foot being Ew. washed ashore? That's the fact that that's a common thing. Is I mean, just... before you just walk by a pair, of, you know, or not a pair, but a tennis shoe, you just walk by, you know, no big deal. But now everybody's looking at the tennis shoe really closely. Gross. <laughs> Absolutely disturbing. Well, my story also has to do 
with finding something or somebody on a beach. (laughs) All right. This is a mind twister. It's unsolved and bizarre. Okay. The year is 1948. World War II had ended and the Cold War was just beginning. The case takes place in Australia, Adelaide, Australia, on Somerton Beach. It's December 1st, and police get the call that a body had just been discovered there on the beach. Okay. The very well-dressed man was slumped in the sand, his head resting against a seawall, legs outstretched and crossed at his ankles. He looked rather relaxed, almost as if he was sleeping. Mm Mm-hmm. And many people actually thought he was. Probably passed right by him. Just the previous evening, on a stroll with his wife, John Lyons witnessed the man laying in just that same position. He was alive then, smoking a cigarette. He remembered the man raising his right arm into the air and in like odd jerky fashion, and then it fell flat against his body. John and his wife kind of chalked it up to the man was drunk. drunk, just sleeping it off on the beach. The next morning, December 1st, John Lyons had gone for a morning swim in the ocean and discovered some men gathering around something on the beach. Going to inspect the scene, he discovered the same man from the night before laying just as he had, relaxed in the sand. Hmm. Police are called and obviously right away they try to identify this man. With his toe prints? Oh my God. (laughs) I'm never going to live that down now. (laughs) Nope. No, mom, by searching his person. (laughs) But the man has no identification on him. No wallet, no papers. Honestly, there's no meaningful belongings to identify him. And the guy is young. Why is he dead? There are no marks or anything on him to explain his death. Hmm. He was taken to the local mortuary where an autopsy is done basically right away. So like I said, there's nothing to identify Nothing of of identification purposes in the man's clothes. What's odd, too, is that all of the tags on his clothes had been cut out. Well, Mm. I find that odd. Police didn't necessarily find that odd. During the war, fabric was rationed. So a lot of clothing was purchased secondhand. Oh, And maybe they cut the old owner's name out that had been written on the tag or something like that. So the police didn't think too much of it, but... It was just kind of odd that the tags were cut out, I think. But because the tags were cut out, officers couldn't even discover like where the clothing was from. What country was were these clothes from? Was he local? Was he a foreigner? Pathologists believe he was only around 40 to 45 years of age. He had longer hair that was brushed back, was slightly graying. There were no lesions, no noticeable disease. General observation showed the man to be in very good shape. Mm. His shoes were freshly polished. His hands, although tobacco stained, showed no sign of manual labor. They were soft and his nails were very nicely manicured. Oh my gosh. There were no scars. He had strong arms and a thinner waist. Another thing the pathologist noted was that the man had very muscular calves And that his feet seemed to be in a wedged shape, like he was used to wearing pointed shoes. Mm -hmm. With the muscular calves and the shape of his feet, the pathologist assumed the man to be possibly a ballet dancer. Dancer. That or he wore high heels a lot. (laughs) I'm going with the dancer. Going into the autopsy, they still couldn't find anything that gave them answers. He seemed to have died of heart failure, but his heart was otherwise very healthy. So it was almost as if... It was healthy up to the point of it just stopping. stopping. His spleen was enlarged and his stomach and liver was filled with blood, which can be a sign of poison. The stomach and the liver were sent off to be tested by the most common poisons that they thought. Uh huh. But all tests came back negative. negative. With no signs of foul play and no signs of poison, his cause of death was just left blank. Now, there were two rarities that they did discover on what they now named the Somerton Man. He was missing his lateral incisors. Okay. They didn't look to have been removed, but rather they just had never come in. And also his ears were kind of rare, I guess. Like the upper portion of his ear 
was larger than the lower portion. So like the hollowed part of your ear, mm-hmm. the upper hollow was larger than the lower hollow okay. in his ears. But besides that, there's like nothing that these cops could get from the victim of who this person was. They had no idea. A set of fingerprints <laughs> was sent off to different test sites. I mean, they even sent them to Scotland Yard uh-huh. and to the FBI. They even sent them to military records. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Oh, my goodness. Now, although I said that nothing of significance was found on the body, that doesn't mean that nothing was found in general. They found just it was just nothing that would give away his identity. In his pockets, they found some combs, some cigarettes. They found a used bus ticket, presumably the bus that had brought him there to the Somerton Beach. Mm-hmm. And they also discovered an unused train ticket. Oh, you and I have talked about it before. Like, I don't know how detectives just decide to go look this person or that way and how they solve these crimes. It just it blows my mind. But after days of having the body on hand and no missing person cases reported mm-hmm. where they could pinpoint it, somebody was like, let's go check the train station. If the man had a train ticket, where was his luggage? And sure enough, there was a suitcase discovered there. It had been left at the station storage area the day before the body was discovered. Okay. Okay. Now, at this point, a very renowned pathologist, John Burton Cleland, had been called to the case. And I'm actually going to read from his notes taken from his look into the case. Quote, I consider there is practically no doubt that the suitcase left in the left luggage room at the railway station belonged to the deceased. On a card in the suitcase is some orange-colored linen thread. I've examined this microscopically, and it corresponds microscopically in color and size of fibers with similar thread used to sew up a trouser pocket in the suitcase. Buttons on the trousers taken off of the deceased and where the coat collar of the deceased had given way. The color is unusual, was warm sepia of Ridgeway. I'm assuming that's a color. I mean, he must have pulled out like the Crayola box and and compared. I think he renamed something. (laughs) Better than your whatever you named this champagne we're drinking. Cur Royale. (laughs) So because of this fiber, they can say that this suitcase belongs to the deceased. Okay. Other things they discovered were that the stitching on some of the items of clothing seemed to be of American type. And I even read in a couple resources that one of his ties had the stripes going from left to right, like diagonally. Uh And that was what American designers usually did for their ties. Wow. I I thought that was really crazy. So like, okay, he, they assumed possibly American just by some of the types of clothing that were in there Uh or... So, like I said, some resources said the tie. Now, it was interesting because some items of clothing, I think like two items of clothing, had the name Keen written in them. K-E-A-N. And then one item of clothing had Keen written in it with the E at the end. K-E-A-N-E. So, some people thought maybe the E was for his last name. Oh. Like Keen and then his last name started with an E. But they looked into this and nothing was ever found. So Weird. Okay, so that's where you start to kind of start to go down rabbit holes. Like, was this guy trying not to be found who he was? Was this some kind of a red herring? Was this somebody else's clothes that he had bought and he just never took the name out the of name it? Takes like, off of those, yeah. Just don't. Very odd. So this pathologist, John Burton Cleland, his notes are really fun to read through. I printed them off and old school highlighted a couple things because it was <laughs> okay. really fun to read through some of his stuff. Like he gives a description of the deceased. Quote, his hair was brushed back off forehead. No parting. Fair approaching sandy colored turning gray. Rather long question mark for a man. <laughs> this item seems important in identification. Also, do many Americans brush the hair backwards more so than Britainers? <laughs> what he asked in the notes. <laughs> Nails of fingers and toes clean and carefully attended to. Evidently particular in his appearance. Mm-hmm. So it was just really fun to read his notes. My favorite part here is where the mystery really gets interesting. As if it isn't already. Okay. This is another quote from the pathologist's notes. In an easily overlooked small money pocket 
on the right side of the front of the trousers Mm -hmm. was a small piece of paper torn from its context with imprint in large letters. Tamam Shud. I understand it's Arabic for completely, wholly. This may suggest the intention to commit suicide. But if this was meant to be found, why place it in a small pocket likely to be overlooked? He was evidently acquainted with Turkish or Arabic. Had he served there in the army, British or USA, or visited as a sailor, evidently had stayed in the Middle East sufficiently long to acquire some smattering of the language. Pockets otherwise empty, no money, no papers. Looks as though these had been deliberately got rid of. Could hardly have been robbed as a dead man before 6.30 a.m. Hardly likely to have spent exactly all the money he had, having not a penny. Hmm. Unquote. Weird. So it's in the same place that Zazu's pe- petals were. Zuzu's petals? Zuzu's. <laughs> Zazu's. Zazu is in Aladdin. <laughs> Zazu had feathers, not petals. It's so it's just like in that small little pocket. Zuzu's petals, yes. (laughs) Now, this piece of paper with Tamam Shud. So this was discovered to be torn from a book. The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. It was a 12th century poem written in the 12th century. Yep. Got it, Beth. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And it actually wasn't translated to English until 1859. It was a pretty popular poem. It was about seizing the day and living for the moment. In the 40s, it was a pretty popular gift given between lovers when they were separated by the war. Talum should should be translated to it is finished. Oh, okay. Did this allude to suicide like the pathologist suggested or something more sinister? Investigators came to the belief that if the Summerton man had been poisoned, there were two possibilities. These two drugs could have very easily been overlooked. They were deadly. They could go undetected and they would cause heart failure, mimicking a heart attack. One of them, Digitalis, had actually been used the same year in the death of a Soviet spy. Ooh. Harry Dexter White, the assistant secretary of the United States Treasury, died of a supposed heart attack just days after being accused of being a Soviet spy. Eventually, the death was found to be from an overdose of Digitalis, and eventually it was found that he was, in fact, a spy. Was a Somerton man a spy as well? Ooh. His identity was a total mystery, with the tags being removed from the clothing and the name Keen and Keen. Yeah. Like, was this a red herring? He had no papers, no wallet, and just the piece of paper that basically said it is finished, folded so tiny and placed in a little pocket. Because of the font of the Tamam Shud, they know it came from a rare copy of the Rubaiyat. They went on a hunt and even went public with asking if anyone had the book and if they did, if they were missing the back page. <laughs> Eventually, a man came forward. No way. Saying that he discovered the book in the back of his car. He didn't have the book, had never seen the book, but it was missing the last page. So he'd never owned it, but all of a sudden it was in the back of his car. Okay. And it was missing the back page. Interviewing the man, they discovered that around the time of the Somerton man's death, this man had parked his car near the beach and had left his windows open. Story sounds bizarre, but... (laughs) Okay. The detectives went with it. We're going with it. Okay. So he was interviewed and testing was done on the page or on the book. Uh And this was the The book. book. Are you ready for more crazy? Uh Uh-huh. In the testing of the book, they discovered impressions. They were very faint. They could not read them. But it's almost as if the book was used as a hard surface for somebody to write on a piece of paper on top of it. Uh Uh-huh. They used an ultraviolet light to discover the impressions. That's crazy. What'd they say? What'd they say? What they discovered was not words. It's very code-like. It's four lines of scribbled letters. Just random letters. Of course, these quote-unquote codes were sent to 
naval intelligence. Like it was sent to many things. Like what is this? He's the first zodiac. And they said this is not a code. Their best oh. guess was that it was an acrostic of some kind. So the definition of that is because I didn't know what it was. A poem, a word puzzle, or other composition in which certain letters in each line form a word or words. Underneath the four rows of letters was two rows of numbers. Police believed these numbers to be phone numbers. One phone number led to a local bank. The other to a young 27-year-old woman named Joe Thompson. Police go and interview her. Of course. She was a trained nurse from World War II. She claimed to be married to a man named Prosper Thompson, but police will later learn that they weren't actually married until a few years after this. Okay. She had a three-year-old son. They asked if she had ever heard of the Rubaiyat. She had. Had she ever gifted it to somebody? She had. While she was training to be a nurse in 1945 to a man named Alf Boxall at the Clifton Gardens Hotel before he was sent off to the war. They start to question her more, and she starts to shut down. Now, at this point in time, it had been over six months since the body was discovered. They had embalmed the body, and they kept pumping with fluids as much as they could, but, I mean, they had to bury the sucker. Mm. (laughs) It was not encased in a shoe. Before they had buried it, though, they had asked a taxidermist to actually create a bust of the man's head and shoulders. A taxidermist? Mm Mm-hmm. They used to do those. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's what the resources said. Okay. They brought Joe Thompson to look at the bust that they had made. And they asked her if, is this Alf Boxall or somebody she knew? Mm -hmm. They're watching for her reaction. See how she's going to react to this. And again, she's super suspicious. She sees the bust and then like looks straight down at the floor. She looks so shaken that they actually believed she would she was gonna faint oh my goodness they asked is this alf she said she didn't know but investigators knew that this woman knew more than what she was leading on definitely alf boxall is discovered alive and well living in australia with his rubaiyat book still sitting on his bookshelf oh shoot but joe thompson was still so odd about the summerton man but there's no evidence that they can even arrest her i mean just because she's acting odd Everything just goes cold. Joe Thompson even asks for her name not to be part of the permanent record of the case. She doesn't want her name linked to the mysterious Somerton man. Oh, my goodness. And at that, the official investigation ends. But my story doesn't end. In 2007, an electrical engineering professor, Derek Abbott, is obsessing over the case of the Somerton man. He is convinced at the theory that he was a spy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the 40s, in Australia, a spy had been discovered dead with a copy of the Rubaiyat laying next to him. He was found in a park across the street from the Clifton Gardens Hotel. Oh. This is too much coincidence with the story he read in interviews with police and some mysterious nurse. Mm-hmm. So oh, he yeah, starts, that's right. Her name wasn't in it. So he ah. starts digging. A retired homicide detective was also obsessed with this at the time. He actually went through all the phone number listings of people and eventually found Joe Thompson. Detective Jerry Feltis interviewed Joe Thompson in 1979, but she refused to admit knowing the Somerton man, of course. Derek Abbott, the electrical engineering professor, was too late in finding her. She'd already passed. He spoke to friends and discovered her son, Robin. Remember, she had a three-year-old son when the Somerton man was found. He had also already passed. But looking more into this son, Robin, who was born out of wedlock, Mm -hmm. some things were very interesting. Like I said, Robin was three at the time of the Somerton man's death. Other things like the fact that Robin was missing his lateral incisors. (gasps) And his ears. And that his top portion of his ear was larger than the bottom. Oh, also... May I mention that Robin was also in ballet? No. Joe had signed her son Robin up for ballet at a very young age, which is very rare for the time period for a boy to be in ballet. Mm -hmm. Perhaps she knew he had a talent like his father. 
Discovering all of this, Abbott sent a photo of the Somerton man to Robin's ex-wife, asking her if she knew of any dancer that looks like him. Her response? Yes, her ex-husband, Robin. In 2010, Abbott went and met with Robin's ex-wife and their daughter, Rachel. So I know it's confusing because Joe can be a woman and a man's name and Robin, but so you had Joe Thompson. Mm -hmm. She had a son, Robin, Robin. who we don't know who the father is, but we're assuming is a Suburban man. Mm -hmm. They've both passed. But Robin's Mm ex-wife, Robin and this ex-wife had a daughter named Rachel. Rachel. So Abbott's going and talking to the ex-wife and the daughter, Rachel. Mm -hmm. Now, resources are a little back and forth here, but it's either the night he met Rachel or a couple nights later. But he asks Rachel to go to dinner with him. They're at dinner. He proposes and the two are married. What? (laughs) They've been married since 2010. They have three children. Talk about really throwing yourself into the investigation. (laughs) He really wants the Somerton man to be exhumed. Oh he wants goodness. the DNA to be tested between the Somerton man and Rachel. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, the Attorney General of South Australia actually granted a conditional approval for an exemption if Abbott provided the funds, which would roughly be about $20,000. Now, obviously, there are so many theories. You know, you could go, and I kind of, maybe because mom's rubbed off on me, but the more sensible, like romantic story. The Somerton man and Joe Thompson met and fell in love before the war. Joe became pregnant. Maybe he knew about it. Maybe he didn't. But she had the baby, Robin. And then that December 1948, the Somerton man came out to profess his love for Joe or possibly reconnect with her or meet his son. He brought along a copy of the Rubaiyat because it meant so much to him because she had gifted it to him before the war. Mm-hmm. But because of the times, I don't think Joe wanted to mess with her relationship with Prosper Thompson at the time. I mean, they ended up getting married eventually. Maybe there was a fight. Maybe she sent him on his way. Riddled with grief, the Somerton man left, ripping the end of the book with him, tossing the book into an open window of a car along the (laughs) side of the beach, throwing his wallet into the local trash, took the overdose of Digitalis and died on the beach. Or perhaps... He was a spy. I like the spy story. Maybe he was killed by other spies. His tags cut out. No papers or identification. It's all so mysterious. He was a spy or killed by spies. Or maybe he and Joe were spies. Yeah, I think Joe has more to do with this. According to an interview with Joe's daughter, Kate, in 2013, on Australian's version of 60 Minutes, Kate honestly believed Her mom was a Russian spy. She stated that her mother had a dark side. She also stated that her mom had said she knew who the Summerton man was, but would never tell. Joe Thompson had also said that the truth was known, but only by those higher than the police force. Oh, the end. Wow. Interesting. Oh, she definitely knew more. Yes. Who knows? She was a nurse. Maybe she killed him. Yes. And we've learned, like, I I don't know. I was a ding dong. I thought toes had fingerprints. But I always thought that, like, you run tests on something that it's just, like, you put the blood in there and then, bing, it'll ding something. Pop up. But I guess you have to specify what you want. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they ran it across, like, all the poisons that are the most normal poisons. But maybe they didn't run it against that poison. Like, maybe it was a really simple poison, but they didn't run it. I don't know. But it's just bizarre that we don't know who he is. There's no papers, no wallet, no anything. Remember when I did the, um, gosh, I don't even know what episode it was. The guy who killed people in the hospitals. Which episode, mom? (laughs) I don't know which episode it was. He, he, He was a nurse, I think. And he killed people that were terminal or in the hospital. And he kept going... From hospital to hospital to hospital. Why am I drawing a blank? He used that poison. What, Digitalis? Uh And there was another medication that was just like Digitalis, but I couldn't even try to pronounce it. So So you went with this one? (laughs) Yeah. Well, this was the one that kept coming up in resources too. But Oh my gosh. Mm, But question, 
okay, so in a way, we know that Rachel is his, what, great granddaughter or granddaughter? Would be his granddaughter. What is that? Well, no, no, no. Rachel would, yeah, Rachel would be his granddaughter. Right. So what would that prove? And pretty much we already know that Robin was his son because of... That cannot just be assumed. Maybe it would just be proven fact that they were related and but then maybe they could trace him too of yeah my my big thing too is like okay if he poisoned himself where's the pill bottle where's the proof of that yeah if you took an overdose of that like well i don't know it would be close by to where you are it would hit you pretty quickly wouldn't it i don't know that's it we don't know how long that would take to take effect it could take maybe 15 minutes Maybe he threw the vial in the ocean or maybe threw, you know, someplace. So, you know, if he if he committed suicide. But then I don't know. It just sounds so weird. Mm-hmm. If he if he killed himself, why would he leave his bus or his train ticket in his pocket? Or a suitcase at the train station. Exactly. His train. It's like he, he was going to take would, the train. Would and know he... that they would link that to, I mean... He would know that they would find his suitcase. Right. But it's almost as if he had a train to catch, but he had some time to kill. So he went and just wanted to walk the beach for a little while before he had to go catch the train like yeah. just to chill. But the first know. guy, the John Lyons guy who saw him on the beach when he walked by with his wife, that was at like seven o'clock at night and he seemed kind of drunk. Out of And it, then right. the next morning... Like some woman saw him really early in the morning and she saw mosquitoes on his face. And she was like, man, he's really sleeping because he's not swatting away these mosquitoes. And she just kind of went on her way. But then like, I guess a crowd started gathering around him. And one guy like kind of poked him at the leg like, dude, what is going on? You're just because he caught a lot of attention because he's in like a suit. Like he's dressed up, shiny shoes, laying on the beach. So he clearly didn't go for a beach day. He didn't wow. go to get a tan. And he had a bunch of dead mosquitoes around him because <laughs> they sucked his blood. And they Ew. caught the poison. Ew. <laughs> Good story. Thanks. I've been wanting to cover it for a while now. So I thought this would be perfect. Good, good story. Well, as I was just collecting my notes for you to start telling your story, I saw something that I highlighted. And this is in the pathologist's notes. Okay. It says... HCN and cyanides kill so quickly that the bottle could not be disposed of and no containers found though searched for. If no ordinary poison, then the deceased must have special information to lead him to choose something difficult to detect. Mm. This guy was a spy. I'm going with that. Well, it's the most intriguing I am going with that. And then there's all these other notes that is like literal doctor chicken scratch <laughs> stomach contents and i'll have to send them to your sister to interpret mm-hmm. okay are we ready i am so ready mom i you just filled up my glass for me and i am ready all right all right this is my number two. Oh my gosh i became interested in my second bizarre tea is that a what? word that all sounded slurred what <laughs> my second bizarre tea bizarre tea if it's not a word, it should be. Yeah. Something that is the theme of bizarre is bizarrity. Okay. Episode 100 is named bizarrity. It's a name now. <laughs> it is such a cool word. Anyway, when I watched the second season of Unsolved Mysteries, episode number four, titled Tsunami Spirits, it uncovers the aftermath of the March 2011 earthquake that rocked Eastern Asia, the Eastern Asian Sea floor the quake could be felt for six minutes oh my gosh triggering the tsunami that devastated ishinomaki miyaki Mm. oh gosh here we go again i looked it all up my gosh our patrons right now are laughing because it's very similar (laughs) to your hawaii episode you put out for them ishinomaki miyagi japan Specifically, stories of spirits that were encountered after the devastation. For those that don't remember, the coast of the mainland was hit with a 9.1 magnitude earthquake, which caused a very powerful tsunami that struck an hour after the earthquake. 
To give you a little idea about the tsunami, some waves measured 128 feet oh high. Oh my gosh. These powerful waves came some six miles inland, further causing flooding when a river overflowed. Eleven communities were hardest hit by the tsunami. Sorry, I'm not even going to attempt those names. Just move on, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even going to do it. A total of 217 square miles were flooded. Mm. Then we can't forget when the cooling system failed at the Fukushima Sorry. Oh, no. At the nuclear power plant. There you go. (laughs) Causing a meltdown. As the waters retreated, several victims were carried out to sea. According to Japan's Fire and Disaster Management Agency, more than 15,000 people were killed and 2,500 are still missing. The Unsolved Mystery episode really captures the devastation the tsunami wrecked on the land and the people. I mean, I was, you know, one of those things where you don't want to look at an accident and you're driving by, but you still look. That was kind of the way I felt watching this episode. It was like, I really don't want to see this. This is so horrific because it was true life. Like footage. Footage. Yeah. But you couldn't tear away from it either. You know, Mm -hmm. it was awful. Awful. I can't even put into words. Following the earthquake and tsunami... There were, and perhaps still are, many reports of encounters with ghosts, especially of ghosts searching for their home and family. Of course, not everyone wants to tell their story about encountering a spirit, but some have. There are quite a few stories from cab drivers. Hmm. One said that he picked up a woman one evening. He didn't really think about it at the time, but it was summer and warm, but the woman was wearing a heavy coat and was soaking wet, as if caught in a rainstorm. But there had been no rain in days. The woman got into the back of the cab and asked to be taken to a specific neighborhood. The cab driver asked her if she was sure she wanted to go there. There was nothing left of the neighborhood but rubble. Quietly, the cabbie heard the woman whisper, Am I dead? (laughs) When he looked in the mirror to see her, she was gone. Another story told by cab drivers that he picked up a young man who asked to be driven to a village in the mountains. When he got to where the village once sat, the cab driver turned to ask for payment, but his back seat was empty. Oh, gosh. These are but two of many stories. I'm just wondering how many drivers are losing money because of these spirits. <laughs> oh, they are taking their precious time. Well, they're driving like to far yeah. places. Oh, shoot. There are also stories of possession. One is as follows. There was a man who, after being displaced by the tsunami, refused to go back to see the devastation the tsunami had caused. When six months later, he felt like he could possibly go back, he did. He was saddened, of course, as he looked at the destruction. But that was all, and he returned home. The man seemed fine until dinner. As the family ate, the man suddenly rose, started speaking very loudly in words no one understood. He tore at his clothes, ran outside where he proceeded to find a mud hole and rolled in it, (laughs) screaming and speaking in that odd language. The family finally managed to put the man to bed and the next morning he had no memory of what had happened, but still felt ill at ease and sick for several days. He finally went to a Buddhist monk who performed an exorcism. When the exorcism concluded, the man felt lighter, as if something dark had entered him and was now gone. There are several stories of knocking on doors. When answered, there's someone standing there looking forlorn and confused. Then the person simply disappears or evaporates. Or what? Evaporates. (laughs) Evaporates. (laughs) evaporates one man admitted when asked that he hates the rain because he sees the eyes of tsunami victims in the puddles oh my gosh so many of these types of stories as well as people reporting seeing departed loved ones in their dreams with the loved ones speaking very vividly to them So when you hear all of these personal accounts of people seeing and hearing spirits, you wonder if maybe there are hundreds of spirits 
walking around these communities wondering what the heck happened you know like yeah what's, we've talked about what's that before going like, on they were taken so quickly or right in such a way that yeah they're just trapped a british reporter richard lloyd perry covers these accounts of quote tsunami spirits in his book ghosts of the tsunami if you want to dive deeper into this strange case his book covers the faith of the japanese people they believe that all things be they animated or inanimated are inhibited by spirits because the tsunami took the lives of people so unexpectedly that many restless souls wander in this world. Now I could end here, but that would be unfair because there's another side of this phenomenon. Of course, it's me. I have to present that. Mm-hmm. Dr. Charles Figley of the School of Social Work at Tulane University states that it is not unusual for a large group of people in this case, an entire nation, to process their grief and trauma in a like-minded way. In this case, the tsunami ghosts. But don't misunderstand me. Whether there are actually ghosts or not, they are real to those who profess to have seen them. So I'm not taking away from that at all. Maybe seeing these spirits is a way of grieving and of inner healing from the devastating tragedy. Interestingly, across Japan, especially in the coastal towns, there are other ways to grieve. And I found this so interesting. I came across this is a picture of a lone white telephone booth sitting on a hill overlooking the ocean with absolutely nothing else around it except for wild grasses and flowers. Okay. So picture this lone white telephone booth. It is called, quote, Phone of the Wild. No, it is not a piece of art. It is a grief release installed by the coastal town. Oh my gosh. Otsichi. That's the name of the town. By using this booth, those grieving can call and send a message to those they miss who have died. Oh my gosh. While they look over the waters. I just... Oh my gosh. Mom, you're supposed to be telling bizarre stories, not sad ones. This... Some Nami was devastating just uh, the devastation and death caused by the earthquake and tsunami is real the grief felt by many caused by the disaster is real who's to say that the spirits they see are fact or not real dr figley had an awesome quote here it is ghosts for some are more tolerable than the void created by death Oh, wow. I love that. Pretty deep, but. Oh, I'm three glasses in. <laughs> that was too deep for me. Yikes. I thought that that phenomena was just so interesting. If you get a chance and if you haven't seen that Unsolved Mysteries episode number four, it is fascinating. Absolutely that phone fascinating. is really cool. Yeah, that wasn't in the episode, but yeah, the phone booth. They're thinking of all kinds of creative ways to actually have people handle this. Try to find some closure and move forward. Yeah. Or to just, you know, talk out their grief. Sure. You know. How fascinating. Very, very interesting. All right, Mom, what's your last one? Okay. upper, right? No. What? You're going to end us on a low note? It's extremely fascinating. Number three. Okay. I don't know if bizarre is the correct word to describe number three. Bizarities? Bizarity. But this is not. I don't want to disrespect a religion or culture by calling their rituals bizarre. Let's just call number three fascinating. Okay. At least I thought so when I first heard about it. For over a century, here we go again. I'm sorry if I totally mispronounce things. Oh, I did boy. look it up oh, to see boy. how I'm they pronounce it. I'm going to take a gulp. I'm going to take a gulp. Okay. For a century, the Torjan people in a tribe from the Sulawesi Island in Indonesia have celebrated a festival known as Manena, which is translated the ceremony of cleaning corpses. Of cleaning corpses? Yes. Before I get into the ritual, I would like to tell you a little of the people to maybe help you understand why they do what they do. 
The Torajan live high in the mountains of Sulawesi. Their village is so remote that no one knew of their existence until the 1970s. Fourth cousins and beyond are encouraged to marry so the families stay connected. Rarely do people from the tribe leave the village because their belief is that the spirit of a dead person should always return to their home. So the Torajan are afraid to venture too far from the village in case an accident or something happens that could cause their death and their body could not be returned to the village. The Torjan belief is that death is just a step on an ongoing spiritual journey. This being said, the funeral is the first step. Some funerals will last a week with elaborate celebrations. Because the funeral is the first step, many will save what little money they make through their entire lives so that they or their family members can have a respectable funeral. In some cases, when there is not enough money saved up for this type of funeral, the funeral will be put off for several weeks or even months. Oh, Now, when I was looking at this, we're talking about, they do do embalm. Oh, okay. We're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. These funerals cost... They're just really elaborate. Twenty thousand dollars or something. I mean, some some ungodly amount, because they slaughter water buffalo and they is like it goes on for a week. These oh celebrations okay. and stuff. Okay. Oh, the what they're buried in the caskets, I guess, are, are elaborate in themselves. I mean, it's 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 very interesting. Okay, so. Sometimes the funeral is put off, okay? Meanwhile, the embalmed corpse is housed in a tongkornin, which are literally houses to store the dead. So... Are they on ice? Like, what? I don't understand. They're embalmed. Okay. And they're in their caskets. And they're in these houses. Okay. After the funeral, the deceased is buried in the family mausoleum. Okay, so... But while they're being housed in the Tonkernin, the family members will come and visit them and will bring food to them and will talk to them. So then they're buried in these family mausoleums. But this extravagant funeral, when it does happen, is not the last time the deceased loved one is seen. Every three years during the festival of Menenana, the the Torajan... Villagers exhume their dead relatives. Not- and I'm uncomfortable, so I'm trying to not laugh through the uncomfortableness right now. <laughs> this is not an easy feat, as the mausoleums are built into steep rock. So literally, dig these corpses out. Literally, they are in the side of a mountain, so they have to go up there, and they basically hoist the bodies down. Then they stand them up in the sun after they take them out of the casket. They stand them in the sun for a while to dry. Then they clean them and dress them in new clothes, stand them up and pose with them for family photos. Hold hold on. So how haven't they like, so they do this with all of the deceased in their family? Uh So they got like grandma, grandpa, uncles, aunts. Some of them do. Yeah. Great grandpas in there and Uncle yeah. Ted from my second cousin twice removed. Well, they're not. Like, I mean, but they'll there's family pictures with a few, like so three or four dead people standing there. How are these still staying corpses, though? Like they can still stand up? I, they Or they can still stand and wash and dress. Them. They embalm them sure. and then they wrap them. They like mummify them somehow? Yeah. I mean, they're decomposing slowly. You could tell that by some of them, but they, they're mummified. I mean... And they brush them off with this little brush, <laughs> like they're cleaning them off, and they brush them off with this brush. Then I, they pose them with family pictures. Okay, I I don't know. I don't want to be this disrespectful, but like, how does that help you move on from somebody's death? That would make it so much harder for me. But they're still part of you. That's just it. it we but have such a different. Those bodies aren't like your soul, sure, but like those bodies are just. But we have such a different view of death yeah. than these people do. Oh, that's fascinating. 
And these pictures include any of the family deceased, babies, oh, children, oh, okay. oh. parents, grandparents, etc. And if the deceased liked to smoke while they were alive, well, heck, let them smoke. So a cigarette's put in their mouth. A smoking cigarette is put in their mouth. In one picture, the family was standing with the deceased who had a hat, sunglasses, as well as a cigarette in his mouth. While bodies are out of the coffins, the old coffin is repaired or even replaced to stop the bodies from decomposing quickly. And if you ever see pictures of these bodies, some of them are truly amazing. I have to Google this right now. After the deceased is put back, then things that they enjoyed while alive are also placed within, like phones, flowers and if they happen to have had a favorite pair of sunglasses well those are put on the face of the dead anything that they really enjoyed is put in the coffin as well i find it interesting how much we in western culture seem to be afraid of death one reason i believe is that we are so sheltered from it in the torajan culture children are brought up seeing their dead relatives they don't fear them it's just part of life if a family cannot afford a funeral and the deceased relative is housed in the Tonkernin for however long, the family, along with the children, will visit the relative daily, bringing them food and drink. One picture that I guess should have been sad or even creepy, but wasn't to me after my research, was a picture of a father holding the standing corpse of his little daughter and his other daughter, living, sitting beside her dead sister. Oh, looking into this culture made me wonder. So do they even believe in ghosts? Right. Because they believe that that spirit is with that body. Some of these pictures are crazy. This is so fascinating. I know. I don't like the ones with the kids and the babies, so that's so sad. But this mom is just smiling, holding her baby. I know. It's the way we look at death that is so different from the way that they look at it do you see the father yet holding the little no i mean these bodies are decomposed don't get me wrong i was thinking of looking they look like people i mean no 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 there are definitely skeletons in a lot of these but yeah this guy's in sunglasses with a cigarette this is oh my gosh this is there are no words this is crazy this is really interesting i just found it totally fascinating because it's it's just nothing that we in the Western culture even would even think of, you know, we, we would look at that and, you know, like psycho keeping his mother alive, you know, or keeping his dead mother's body. But in this culture, that is the norm. And it's done every two to three years. They take their, the body out and they clean it and they pose with it and everyone's smiling. It's a family picture. I mean, the more I looked into it, the more I just, I, I didn't think it was creepy after a while. Yeah, but they can't, I wouldn't imagine they believe in ghosts then. Because I know, that was my big question. I, I, do they believe in the supernatural? Do they believe in ghosts? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Sometimes you just have to say, hmm. hmm. <laughs> Pour me another. <laughs> hmm. Well, bizarre, bizarre, bizarre. Bizarrity. Bizarrity. Number 100. Number 100. Done and done. Wow. That was fun. 2022 is going to be the year. I told you guys that for my 33rd birthday on 2022, the year of the doubles, it's a good year. There's a lot of good things coming. Guys, we are planning a live show. We are. We are planning a live show show you guys have asked you are receiving we are working on it look for it soon got the venue oh my gosh i mean just so many good things are coming from just a simple little hobby that mom and i wanted to pick up and do and we did in her little computer room in her house and we had these old dinky microphones that our first episode stunk so bad we had to redo it which was tough. I mean, wow. Yep. And we probably still have quite a ways to advance. Oh, but. yes. I We're not there yet. <laughs> but just the fact that we were asked to do a live show is really cool. I know. 
Thank you guys so much for listening to us 100 times and more. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. Keep sharing us with your friends and family. We really appreciate that. We appreciate all the reviews. We appreciate all the ratings. We appreciate all the follows and the subscribes and the everything else. We are on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube now. YouTube. We are on YouTube. So go and subscribe, follow, rate, review. Just leave us a hey, how are you? Subscribe to our channel. Yeah. And email us, killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any ideas of stories you want us to cover or places you want us to visit or things you want us to do for 2022, Join us on Patreon, download the app, or find us on patreon.com. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Killer Hangover Podcast. It's $5 a month to join us, but we appreciate it. It helps us with podcast preparities, preparations. (laughs) My bizarreities. (laughs) $5 goes to our bizarreties. And our randomness. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow. This is a good episode, Mom. It was fun. Definitely. Well, cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love you, kid.